0: and the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age, rather than by the spirit of Christ.
1: But yet tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get
2: justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone, and in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken
0: about a great many things.
1: Back to the Reformation.
0: It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation.
2: The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. Welcome to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum and I'm here with my co-host,
0: Sayadian.
2: And today we are going to discuss the topic of English Bible translations and how it relates to the Reformation and the authority of Scripture. And to help us with this topic, we have welcomed back a previous guest, Dr. Aaron Schroyak. Welcome back, Aaron. Yeah,
1: great to be with you, Matt and Onik.
2: Yeah. Hey, welcome, Aaron. Welcome back. It's great to have you again,
1: Aaron. Yeah, great to be here.
2: Aaron, why don't you, again, uh, give us some of your background for those who haven't listened to the first podcast that you were on?
1: Right. Well, my name is Aaron Shroyok. I'm currently the director of the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation at the Master's Seminary in Los Angeles. But before being um, in this role, I was a translator, a missionary serving in West Africa and Cameroon, and before that, Chad and Nigeria. And so my my heart has been in Bible translation for years. And so... um, it's just exciting to be here and to talk more about it. We have such a wealth of history and so much that's gone on in the history of the English Bible and Bible translation today, and i um, looking forward to talk about it.
2: That's great. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your teaching position?
1: Well, I'm right now teaching at the Master Seminary. This semester, I'm teaching history of the English Bible, so this is all very much on my mind. But I also teach a class on semantics for exegesis and translation. And it's part of uh, a number of courses I offer in the MDiv program here. And another sort of late breaking development is um, in June we'll be moving to Florida, where I'll be joining another ministry called Unfolding Word. And there I'll be training translators in Africa. So I'll be traveling back and forth to Africa in the future after the pandemic and things calm down. So, but it's exciting. There's so much happening in Bible translation today.
2: Awesome. Okay.
0: That's great. Happy for you. Yes. Thank you. Okay.
2: Let's get down to business here and let's talk about translations. Okay. Where did we get the English translation of the Bible from? Who started it and where did it come
1: from? Well, we have a lot of Bibles today. I mean, we have over 900 different versions. You can get on Bible Gateway and see, you know, 50, 60 easily. But the first complete English Bible was done by John Wycliffe and his colleagues at Oxford University. You may not think of Oxford when you think of Bibles, but um, that's where John Wycliffe was a professor, theologian, priest, pastor, um, and he was the early, he's the morning star, some have called him the morning star of the Reformation, because he was at that point, around 1382 is when they published the first Bible, he was very much um, arguing for the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and trying to um, bring reform to the Roman Catholic Church. At that time, they had two popes and they were busy condemning each other and everyone else. And so he was trying to bring um, some clarity to that situation based on Scripture. He really believed Scripture was authoritative. They had
2: two popes at the time. That's interesting. I've never heard that one before.
1: Yes, yes. And um, the schism, the great schism. And so he was, um, you know, when— He was arguing for the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, whereas his colleagues at Oxford were arguing for the authority and infallibility of the Pope. But that argument didn't go very well when you had two Popes (laughs) um, fighting with each other. But they they objected to Scripture being in English, because they told Wycliffe and his colleagues that it would just lead to error, because people don't know how to handle the Word. And they said people are not you know, fit to hold the word,
0: you know, so. Um, when you mentioned 900 Bibles, you mean 900 separate translations of the English Bible? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, wow. And wow.
1: The, there's a number of reasons for that. Some of them are, are good and some of them aren't, but I mean, if you if you've had a Bible in your language for as long as we have, you're going to have revisions. So that's part of the normal reason you'd expect to have more than one Bible. So, King James Version, the American Standard Version was a revision of that. Um, the ESV that many people use was a revision of the Revised Standard Version. And um, we have the new King James Version, so we have a lot of revisions. But we also have um, versions that were done because certain groups requested their own translation. So, the Dewey Reams was a translation done by Roman Catholics for Roman Catholics. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses have done their own translation. Um, And then you have versions that were done for special levels of English. Like if you go on the web and Google Easy English Bible, um, that's the latest in a series of Bibles that have been done trying to produce a Bible that's a little simpler in its vocabulary and grammar because English is now a language spoken around the world. And so you have people in different parts of the world who may not be able to handle um, all the terminology. And so the desire there is to make a little bit of a simpler Bible. And then there are the evangelistic kind of translations, um, translations made to help evangelize a certain group. So the uh, one that just came out is called the Holy Injil. So it's an English translation for English reading Muslims using different terms to try yeah. to bring the gospel across to them and then i think yeah so that's that's the first pass of the question yeah
0: yeah uh the question i also have is uh so with Wycliffe being the first translator into english what was his reasoning behind it uh, why why did he feel a need for it
1: well, what's what's really um, strikes me is that he always anchored it in Christ and in Christ's command to preach. Now, most Bible translators are not wouldn't say they're preachers, <laughs> you know. They're uh, but Wycliffe was a theologian, pastor, and so he anchored translation in the command to preach to the ends of the earth. And so he argued that if we're told to preach, and we're Told to make disciples, then we must be able to do it in the language people understand. And um,
0: so, being the morning star, as you said, he's the morning star of the Reformation. Then,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So he had uh, the he had the belief of sola scriptura.
1: Well, that's a little bit debated because he said he constantly argued for the authority of Scripture over the Church. And so, um, some have tried to say it's not exactly like the Sola Scriptura of the Reformation, but I think it's, it's, it's really close. And it drove him to the same conclusion, that he needed to translate the scriptures and put them in the hands of every believer. And so, you see that same um, conviction in Luther and then Tyndale, uh, Zwingli, other Reformers um, began to translate even John Calvin. I didn't realize this until I taught this course on History of the English Bible. He was involved in revising the French Bible.
0: Wow. Oh, So with uh, Wycliffe um, being the morning star, who's, uh, who would be the contemporary then? Would that be John Huss?
1: Right. Uh, John Huss um, was one of Wycliffe's students and we know a lot about Wycliffe's teachings, thanks to John Huss, because he took a lot of Wycliffe's teachings and preserved them in Bohemia, where he went on the continent. And then um, he also helped a lot of Wycliffe's followers, because after Wycliffe died, he was condemned as a heretic, right. and his followers scattered. So some of them found refuge in Bohemia.
2: Yeah, Jan Huss was really the first reformer that broke from the Catholic Church, right? He was the Luther
1: of his day. In fact, I think they called him the goose. Right, right. Exactly, because because Wycliffe, he died in the church. Um, he was under um, basically under house arrest, but he died before they could actually pronounce him a heretic. So it was a few years later. It was maybe, I think, perhaps 20 years later when they actually dug up his bones and burned them.
2: Wow. Aaron, so when we talk about Wycliffe, he was a scholastic philosopher and theologian, and not many people knew the original languages of that, back in that day. How did someone like Wycliffe learn these languages?
1: Well, he and his, he and his colleagues actually were translated from Latin and that was not even a simple task for them because they found that the different latin versions of the bible in england at their time didn't all agree so they had to first collect as many latin manuscripts as they could and then try to decide on what was the real text and then they translated from latin into english so they they didn't even have the resources to look at greek and hebrew so there's both a, um, but I think there's a good lesson there, because um, today there are translators around the world who can't—they don't know Greek and Hebrew, so they translate from a, a from English or French or Spanish or in Papua New Guinea from Tok Pisin. And some uh, some people would object to that and say that's not a good translation. And I would agree that those translators um, would love to, and to the extent that they can try to help them learn Greek and Hebrew, but as a first translation, um, those translations can still be used mightily by the Lord, just like Wycliffe's translation was used very uh, mightily for, you know, roughly 100, um, 150 years until the Reformation and the translations of Tyndale and, and, the, and the followers after him.
2: And there is no so-called authorized
1: translation. Um <laughs> no no and if the the um there were some translations that the church the king of England um authorized but you know with each generation the bible needs to be revised and so you know the the task of bible translation will always continue until we're gathered around the throne
0: uh so Matt said there's, well, you already answered, there's no authorized version, but was there uh, a name of Wycliffe's translation? Like we have the ESV as you mentioned and so on.
1: Well, you'll find um, if you go on, if you Google, you can find it, Wycliffe's translation under the Wycliffe Bible. Although more no. scholarly resources are now calling it the Fight Bible, because really it was the product of him and his colleagues um and probably his colleagues did more the actual writing it out by hand than he did himself. It was entirely written by hand. And it's fascinating because they can study the handwriting styles and tell where one person stopped and someone else started. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. Uh so my I have another question. You now Wycliffe uh, you know, he had his um Uh, fundamental beliefs in regards to uh, the authority of scripture but did he heed any of the warnings of the Roman Catholic Church at the time in regards to uh, reasoning behind not giving uh, the the Bible to the people in their own language Uh, one of them being that there may be gross misinterpretation of the Bible did he heed any of that?
1: No, no, he actually did the opposite, he trained lay pastors and sent them out (laughs) so he he was not a man to back down. He he just pushed forward um, with his convictions. So he had what they called the lay pastors, who um, the poor pastors I think they were called, um, followers of his that they trained and sent them out, and they taught and preached in English. And their followers would memorize scripture, memorize the Lord's prayer in English. That was one of the the techniques the church used to. Unearth lollards was to arrest a family and then take yeah. the children aside and ask the children if they can say the lord's prayer in English, and if the kids could, you knew you had a lollard family. the lollards was was the name for for the followers of Wycliffe.
2: yeah, that's what so. I was going to ask you who were the lollards
1: right, right, so lollard is a word it's the etymology is not real clear, but they think it means a babbler. It was a term of derision. <laughs> that they used for the followers of Wycliffe. So now you can just Google it. L-O-L-L-A-R-D, Lawlard, and you'll find the Lawlard Society and different publications on them. They were the, the precursors to the Reformation in, in many ways. They were what they were against the um, the Eucharist, the veneration of saints, right? They believed in preaching and teaching and um you know, discipling in English with Wycliffe's Bible.
2: Yeah. yeah, they were they were predestinarians. They were against the Mass
0: Requiem, correct? That's right. So Wycliffe did uh, mitigate the problem of gross misinterpretation by actually training, like you said, lay pastors, teaching them hermeneutics and so and so on.
1: Right. He they he taught them. I don't know the exact. Um, content of what he taught but he taught them to preach and teach and he really believed in the sufficiency of scripture and, and, um, and that, the, that anyone could take scripture and study it and learn from it and so um, what's really fascinating is the, the Wycliffe Bible has um, a preface and in the preface there's a chapter on translation and they give two reasons at the beginning of the chapter. One is Christ's command to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the second reason is that the people are crying out for Holy Scripture. And so um, and I, I just thought that was really striking because, you know, I think God's people always want God's word. And so they recognize that as they were teaching and preaching, and that motivated them to continue on with their work. So they said, they crieth out after Holy Writ.
2: <laughs> wow. So when we're talking about translation, are we constantly translating or retranslating the Bible for the sake of accuracy to the original text? Is that why we do it?
1: Yes. I mean, that's, that's the primary reason. And, and you have to keep doing that because it may be an accurate translation 400 years ago, but today, because of changes in the English language, People may not understand
2: it, and we have way more manuscript evidence today than ever before because there are so many.
1: Right, that's right. So you also have changes in our understanding of the Greek and Hebrew text and the Aramaic. So we have a better New Testament text today, for example, than um, the Reformers had. Even during the time of of the Reformation, they were constantly improving their the Greek text. So,
2: the more manuscripts that we have, we can compare them to one another, the more accuracy we have.
1: Right, right. So, that's, that's establishing the, the best text, and then you have to um, also keep the translation in English um, as, um, you know, contemporary English, take out words that may not be understood, and then you have changes also in um, the understanding of the ancient Near East, like, there are some passages where um, during, like, in the King James Version, it'll refer to something like um, um, there's a passage in 1 Samuel where it refers to the, um, to coulters and plows and to files. But that term translated files in the Hebrew is pim. And the pim, they weren't sure what it was, but now they know it's a measurement of weight. It's a small stone that they would use to measure things. So with advances in archaeology, we better understand the original text, and then we can translate it more accurately.
0: Interesting.
2: we talk about the English Bible, are we talking about the King James Version of the Bible? What is the first English translation?
1: Well, the the first complete English Bible would be the the, uh, Wycliffe Bible, and then Tyndale uh, published the New Testament in 1526, but he died before he could finish the entire Bible. So his he had two men who worked with him, John Rogers, who produced the Matthew Bible, and Miles Coverdale, who produced the Coverdale Bible. So those two men produced complete Bibles, and those Bibles... Um, there were um, three or four different translations that all were sort of brought together with the King James Version in 1611. So the, the, the translators who produced the King James Version, in the preface, they say that from many good translations, they're making one good translation. And so that was sort of the culmination of that period of, of roughly 80 years of intense translation work during the Reformation.
2: Now, I've never read the Wycliffe Bible. I don't think many people have. Does it read like the King James with the these and the
1: thous? Uh, yes, but it's even more difficult to understand because it's Middle English. So um, if you go on some of the the standard online Bible um, programs like Bible Gateway, there's a line you can look at the Wycliffe Bible, and very often they'll have two parts to it. They'll have the verse twice, because Wycliffe and his followers produced two versions. The first was a very painfully literal translation that was almost, you could think of it as something to help you understand the Latin. But then there was a second version that was done about 10 years later where they ironed out the English and made it more useful just as an English translation. And that's the one that most people used, and so you can find that, um, but it'll be hard to understand. Yeah.
0: So I guess that's a segue into another question. Then, uh, why 900 separate translations? You kind of touched on it earlier, but 900 English translations.
1: Right. Right. Well, the as yeah, just as we touched on a little bit earlier, one are the revisions. Because anytime you produce a translation in 20 years or so, you'll have a revision. So even like in my office, I often use my NASB, 1971, but there's a 1995 revision. And now they're going to come out with a 2020 revision. So there are three different versions right there. So revisions is one part of it. Translation for different churches is a second part. So we have our Roman Catholic Bibles. We have our Protestant Bibles. We even have our Jewish Bibles. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The purpose for the revision itself is it just a literary purpose, or is it you know, some archaeological discovery that updated the actual text, or what purpose would it be?
1: Well, you you always need to revise because languages are always changing. So the English language oh. is always changing, and then you need to revise because we have a better understanding of the manuscripts. Um, and then you need to revise because we have a better understanding of the ancient Near Eastern culture like we were mentioning earlier with the PIM, the weight that they used. And then sometimes you need to revise because there's a difference in sort of your view of translation. The 1971 NASB, it has thee and thou um, and the archaic pronouns when addressing God and in prayer. And that was very appropriate in 1971, because that was considered a respectful way to pray. Uh-huh. Not today. You know, no one's going to fight for that today. So in 1995, that was that was gone from the translation. So there's small changes like that as well.
2: So in 1995,
1: we got the NSAB update. Exactly. Yeah. And so it dropped the thousand dyes and dies and... And I think that's that was a fine change because they realize that the expectation of the churches has changed remember 1971 they were trying they were they were translating for um, People who use the King James Version and who had grown up with that and they were comfortable with the thousand guys So
2: now correct me if I'm wrong but when we're since we're talking about the NASB Bible from what I understand, that the N.S.A.B. Bible reads more accurately to the order of the original Greek than the other English Bibles, such as the New King James Version.
1: I'm not a specialist, but I would I would agree with that. Um, in general, they they try to stay much closer to the grammatical structure of the Greek and Hebrew. So um, that's right.
0: So, uh, when was Greek first used in the translation process into English? You said Wycliffe used the Latin, so did Huss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So William when was the Greek Tindell, actually used? Yeah, William Tyndale oh, was the
1: first translation from Greek into English, and then the other translations that followed depended heavily on Tyndale. Um, they, um, he was a master at translation, and what's fascinating is the. The first Bibles, the Matthews, Matthew Bible and the Coverdale Bible, the Old Testament was not from Hebrew. <laughs> it was from Hebrew for the part that with, that, Tyndale, that uh, Tyndale had done. But the Psalms, for example, Miles Coverdale was a master at translating uh, the Psalms, but they weren't translated from Hebrew because he didn't know Hebrew. So he looked at the Latin and the German and... He, he looked at the Hebrew, but he, he admitted that he really relied on the Latin and German. And so um, it wasn't until the Geneva Bible that we had a complete Bible completely from the biblical languages.
0: Wow, Geneva Bible, okay. And
1: it's a fascinating story, the, uh, the Geneva Bible, because the when Mary came to the throne um, after Henry VIII and Edward, um, the exiles went to the continent. A number of reformers went to the continent, and most of them went to Frankfurt, Germany. But a small group of them were voted out, and they went to Geneva, sort of, you know, with their tails between their legs, feeling like this is not going well. But they were well-received in Geneva, and they found out that Geneva was actually a center for Bible translation and, and printing. And they interacted with the French Reformers, um, the Swiss, the Italians, the Spaniards were there translating, and it was just a really fertile environment for translation. That led to the Geneva Bible. And what is so
2: unique about the Geneva Bible as compared to the Wycliffe Bible?
1: Well, it's the first complete English Bible that is um, fully from the biblical languages. So... And it was the first Bible with a real—it was really designed for you to study it. It had um, verses, chapter and verse numbers, with an extensive footnoting system and notes. Um, It had maps. It had different resources. So when you look at the Geneva Study Bible,
2: that was the precursor for the Bibles that we see today when we look at the bottom of the page see manuscript, blah 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 or some manuscripts might differ
1: Exactly, they the the translators for the Geneva Bible really wanted to help the person in the pew study God's Word and understand it and um, The in it's fascinating because it was so popular and so well received and it was King James who didn't like the notes He's the one who insisted that the King James Version not have notes. But what happened was a few, you know, years after the King James Version came out, they started publishing Bibles that were the King James text with the Geneva Bible notes. How do you like that? Because you know? wow. people <laughs> love study Bibles. You know, they love to be able to study their Bible. So
2: I wanted to stick with the English translation right now. now. Some people, like King James only, say that that is the most accurate translation, that we should use that translation exclusively. What's the problem with that?
1: Well, that that was true. That was true in 1611. But the language, the English language has changed, And all you need to do is take your King James Bible and put it next to your new King James, and you'll see that so much of the English language has changed. And even if you don't accept the, you know, some of the King, most of the King James people would want to use a different Greek text, right? They'd want to use what's called the Textus Receptus. Right. Um, Even if you say, okay, let's use the Textus Receptus, you still need modern English to understand it. So... Um, I remember sitting next to a, a man at church years ago who said, it's only the King James Version, and I didn't understand it the first day, but I prayed. Second day, I prayed. Third day, I prayed. Then I understood it. But it's it's a different English, and you really have to have your Bible and a dictionary and maybe a new King James next to you um, to really see how much you're missing. Because, see, the problem is, not only do you not understand things, but sometimes you don't understand what you're misunderstanding because a word has changed in how it's used. So the English language has changed so much.
0: Okay, we talked about the translations and the reasoning behind them, how many, uh, why we have so many versions and so on, but uh, the philosophical question is, why do we need all these Bibles? I understand that the, you know, Sola Scriptura, the scripture is, uh, the authoritative authoritative word of God for all believers. And, but what about to unbelievers? Was it used for evangelical purposes? Was that the main purpose behind the translation or was it had a dual purpose? I, th- I think it has
1: a dual purpose. See, there, there are two passages that I think are, are really key. Um, People will often quote John twenty thirty one, where it's where John says these things have been written so that you may believe, and I that's true. He wrote that so that people would believe, and I think that shows the evangelistic side to the Scriptures, that by reading them, the Spirit can move and convict us and bring us to salvation. But um, if we look at 2 Timothy three. Um, what Paul records there when he's speaking to Timothy, he tells Timothy, he reminds him that the scriptures made him wise unto salvation. There again, we see the evangelistic side. But then he also goes on to say, say that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for approved correction, for training in righteousness. So there we have the, the purpose of the scriptures for edification in the church. And so I think you have to hold those two together you can't say the scriptures are just for believers um, or the scripture is just for the lost. It's, it's for both. And in fact, um, I was reading a um, about Eugene Nida and the Good News Translation, and this came out in the 1960s. And Eugene Nida wrote a book called Good News for Everyone, How to Use the Good News Version. And he said, this Good News Version is for the lost. So you, believer, you may not use it, but at least buy it and give it to your lost friend. And I I, I, I think that's a great idea. But the problem is, um, over the years, people just haven't bought the Good News Bible and given it away. And I think the reason is people want to witness with the same Bible they use themselves. And I think that uh. comes down to a very fundamental view that the Scriptures are both for you and for you to share in evangelism and then when people come to church this is my experience you you tend to over time want to use the bible everyone else is using what the preacher is using what your bible study leader is using and so even if you come to faith with um, a translation made for evangelism um, you typically will set it aside as you get settled in the church
2: this brings up an interesting topic, translation versus interpretation. Mm-hmm. And when we have an ordinary person, or a lay person, I should say, in the pew, they go to the Bible and they use it, let's say, for their regular study during the day, maybe a devotional, etc., etc. A lot of the times, they don't have study notes. They don't have a study Bible, and they just read through it. But the danger with that is also interpreting the Bible incorrectly. So I guess my question to you is, how do we do this without negating the authority of, or what I should say the authority of the church as far as elders go, that God has ordained elders to teach the layperson or or the congregation?
1: Right. I I, I fully agree that the, the the elders, the leadership are commanded to read the scriptures, to exhort and preach from them, to teach from them. And, right, if you have a number of different translations and they differ, that brings up the question of, well, what does the text really mean? And so I think that should push people individually to study more diligently, and um, I think there's a balance there. You want the people in the pew studying diligently and you also want the teachers, the elders teaching. Yeah. Aaron, this
2: brings up a topic where Onig and I were discussing uh, this concern with a previous guest on the show and we argue that the primary means of grace comes through the teaching and preaching on Sunday mornings and, and of course and through the sacraments. So that's what the Reformed have believed all throughout the years. And the reason for this is because a lay person is not an elder. They don't have the same giftedness that a teeth an elder does have. The lay person doesn't have that giftedness.
1: So would you concur with that? I I guess I yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean the, the scriptures um first Timothy four, um, I think it's four thirteen mentions this that Paul tells Timothy he's the, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. And so I, I think translation of Scripture is for the church. The church, especially the leadership of the church, are to be reading the Scriptures, teaching, and preaching. And that benefits, and blesses, and edifies, and builds up the whole community. And then the individual believers and then go out into the community And share and preach and teach and bring people back into the church for continued um, growth.
2: We often have people interpreting the Bible for themselves. Let's say you have a person who is dedicating their lives to daily study, for it's maybe a devotional time. But we do have qualified elders in the church who the Lord has gifted. And as Reformed people, especially Onig and I, and the history of the Refor- of Reformed thought believes that the primary means of grace of comes through, of course, comes through Word and sacrament. And that we shouldn't neglect the meeting on Sundays because that is the primary way upon which the Word comes to us and how we grow. And w- would you agree with that, that that should be emphasized and that's kind of underplayed in our thinking today?
1: Yeah, I think I that think the, the uh, you know, with my focus on Bible translation, what I really want to see is a church and a community that's centered around the Word and that together um, they're studying the Scripture. And so it's not individually. And this, this ties in with an issue in Bible translation because some people emphasize the Scripture so much that they say, let's just give them the Bible and leave sort of the Gideon approach, you know, just leave the Bible with them and they'll be okay. When what you really, Christ Christ's command was to establish um, churches, um, communities around the world, word, not just individuals with a Bible in their hand.
2: So to follow up on this, when we look at interpretation versus teaching the Bible, right, or, or in translation, My concern is that the individual Christian interpreting it by themselves, or even some pastors coming to the text by themselves, sometimes come up with novel interpretations. Now, isn't it important that we go back to look at the history of thought throughout the Church, for instance, creeds and confessions, to see what they have said, so we don't come up with some novel interpretation?
1: I think that's important, yes, because you need to... um look at Scripture and look at the tradition of interpretation of the Scripture to to safeguard yourself. I think it's, it's dangerous to say, I'm going to come up with a novel thought about Scripture.
2: Yeah, I think that's why we end up with such loony teaching today, because people haven't gone back to see what our predecessors have taught.
1: Exactly.
0: So um, this is what I'm uh, seeing here. The Reformers— did have a concern, as you mentioned, Matt, but not to the point where uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually removed the Word of God from the people's hands so that they can't read it for themselves. So they are completely dependent upon that Sunday sermon or whatever it is. So there is a vast difference between the two. The Reformers had uh, saw the need for preaching and teaching on, uh, as a congregation on a Sunday, but they never removed, they actually put the word of God in their hands as well. Okay. So moving on, uh, you spoke about the Holy, and uh, am I pronouncing this right? In, injil, Jill, can you explain that what that is? Right. Well, that's, um, an example of being
1: novel <laughs> in, in Bible translation. So, um, the, um, It's a new translation in English, and it's a special translation. It says from the beginning that this is a translation for Muslims, to introduce them to the Injil. So the word Injil is an Arabic word. It means, um, well, you'll find it in the Quran, and it refers to the revelation given by Allah to uh, Jesus. And if you read through the Quran, it seems to be referring to a book, so um, the Christian book basically. But the problem is first, sort of determining exactly what it is. Was it was it being used to refer to the whole New Testament, or just to one of the Gospels, or just to those words of Christ? Um, so that's a sort of an interpretive question. But the the author of this new translation takes "angel" to mean the, the New Testament. And um, and so he called his Gospel of Luke the Holy Injil because he's trying to attract Muslims to look at it. Uh, he wants he wants the Muslim to come and read his translation, and so he's done a couple things. For example, all the names, proper nouns, you know, names of people and places, are replaced with what the terms you'd find in the Quran. And so that, that's designed to, um, you know, give the reader terms they're familiar with. Um, and then one, the, sort of the more shocking things that were done, the more innovative, um, Son of God is always translated as spiritual Son of God. So you mm-hmm. never have just plain Son of God. It's always spiritual Son of God.
2: So there's a theological presupposition that's
1: inserted there. Exactly, exactly. So they, he's, he's um, responding to his fear that they're going to say that this translation is, you know, heretical because it's affirming Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, um, and they understand that as meaning some physical relationship, so therefore I'm going to insert spiritual. And hopefully mm-hmm. that'll get my reader to keep reading. Um, but what's, what's, and then there's a, a appendix, which is helpful because he dis, he explains what son of God means, but what's, um, there's some good information in the appendix, but what's disturbing is he never says that son of God refers to the divinity of Christ. He never says that. So it's as though, um, you know, He's trying to bring them closer, but he never crosses the goal line.
2: Close, but no cigar.
1: Yeah, it's sort of, in a way, it's sort of like he's building a bridge to the Muslim, but he only builds half a bridge. I I was just disappointed because even in the appendix at the end, he never comes to the point of saying that Jesus died in your place so that you could be forgiven and that you have assurance through faith in Christ he never gets that clear and simple
2: now is the reason for that is that Jesus was considered a great prophet in muslim thought but if you start going to that if you start going in that direction and you have someone dying for sin then you got a problem on your hands theologically because it's only god who can forgive sin
1: exactly so he's anticipating every objection that a muslim might have And trying not to step on any of those so he's he's carefully maneuvering around these objections but see this is an example of um, some teaching but no really exhortation or call to faith in Christ so as an evangelistic translation I think it's half a bridge I mean he needs to he needs to exhort the reader to faith in Christ so really it's a compromise yeah, I, 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 yes, I, I think he's he's not gone far enough. Right.
0: Well, if he's putting the word Allah in replace of Yahweh or God, and he's not calling Jesus the Son of God, I mean, he's definitely a compromise. Unfortunately, his intentions are good, but his um, his work is probably uh, is of no benefit.
2: Yeah, it really defeats the purpose of trying to reach the unbelieving Muslim when you're doing that to the text because ultimately they do the same thing when they're translating the Bible
1: as well. Yeah. Arning?
0: Yeah. It's like he's, removing, he's trying to remove the stumbling blocks, and yet we're told that uh, like Jesus was a stumbling block, right? And then the gospel is a stumbling block. So you can't remove the stumbling blocks. It's part of the gospel. Right,
2: that's what I mean. You're actually
1: defeating the purpose of it in the first place. Exactly. And so, see, what he needs to do is explain the stumbling block and then finally say, step over it and believe. But he can't bring himself to say, step over it and believe. And so, and I think what will happen is what happens to many of these translations is if the Christians don't want to use it and they don't value it— why would a Muslim value it either? You know, who's going to give this to their Muslim neighbor? You know, so um, I think it comes back to um, witnessing to your neighbor is more than just avoiding certain phrases. You know, it's sharing your life, sharing the truth of scripture, um, and almost any Bible, you know, would probably work for bringing someone to faith in Christ. You don't need a special version that that gives only half the gospel
2: yeah, you want to be careful when you're witnessing to someone and you want to be patient with them and you want to be loving with them but at the same time you need to let the word of god do its thing and when you unleash it you know it's kind of like a lion and sometimes you know it's going to wound people and it's going to do that because that's what it does it convicts people of their sin and we can't be afraid to let it do that
1: exactly yeah i've, I've um... I met two different people in Cameroon. One um, was um, got a Bible, and he kept it secretly and read it quietly and didn't let anyone know. He, he sort of um, assuaged his own conscience by telling himself he's just looking for what it says about Muhammad. But at mm. <laughs> the end of reading it, he put his faith in Christ and another um, young man was reading the bible and reading it with me and he would get upset every time it said son of god that i would just say well let's just keep going and we did (laughs) and we read and read and so i i think um just a gentle encouragement in the context of a relationship does so much more than taking these terms out
0: that's great that's great okay uh so here's another question uh, that came up. So are there pros and cons regarding what the church networks and denominations are doing themselves with translation work? Because you mentioned that uh, a lot of the churches in the field, they're they're waiting for missionaries, and missionaries aren't coming, so they're doing the work themselves, the translation work. So can there be issues of those uh, individuals being unqualified or unskilled to do such work, and, and how is that overcome?
1: Right. Um, so that's a great question because there's a, there's a growing number of churches in different parts of the world, I'm thinking especially of India and Vietnam, where the, the pace of church growth has outstripped the pace of translation. So you have churches that are still waiting for scripture, and some of them have trained pastors who are preaching in Hindi, for example, or in Vietnamese, in Vietnam. And so these churches have said, no one's coming, let's do it ourselves. And on one side, um, no one's qualified, really, to translate God's Word. But what what is encouraging is these groups, they're not doing it in isolation. They're reaching out, and they're trying to get training. And that's where Unfolding Word and other organizations are providing training to them. And now it's easier than ever to provide training because of the software that's available, because of things like Zoom and um uploading videos and different kinds of training you can provide and you can check the quality of a translation remotely by them uploading their translation so it's really a new day in Bible translation
2: let's say that the skeptical the skeptical person asks you well there's so many translations out there it just shows that you don't you don't really have the truth there's just so many there's thousands to pick from so let's just throw up our hands and just pick one, and, you know, and then interpret it any which way you want. So there's kind of this skepticism and also postmodernism.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would take them to Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Almost every Bible in English translates the first part the same. The Lord is my shepherd. There's really no other way to translate that. But the second part is translated three or four different ways. I shall not want, I will not want, I will not lack, um, I don't lack anything. And you can explain those differences in translation based on different levels of making the Hebrew and the English. um, You know, how much do you want to keep the Hebrew structure and how much do you want to keep the English structure? So, you know, just those two little parameters... Um, can give you four different translations. It doesn't give you 400, it just gives you four. But if every verse could be translated two or three ways, that would give you hundreds of versions, right? And that's Mm -hmm. basically what it is. But the truth is that there's one truth, and there's one message. And even if you can say, I will not versus I shall not, the substantive truth stands.
2: Kind of a personal question here. I was using the ESV for many years. Actually, I still do because I was at Sovereign Grace uh, Ministries for 11 years, and we used the ESV. Um, I thought it was a pretty good translation. I still like it. What do you think of the ESV, for instance, compared to the NSCB? Do you think it's a good translation?
1: I think they're, they're like cousins. So if you like the NASB, you'll be comfortable with the ESV. If you use the ESV, the NASV is a little more um, sort of, um, sometimes it reflects the Greek a little bit more than English style, so it may not flow as, as well, but they're both they're cousins. They're both on the more formal side of the translation sort of spectrum.
2: Yeah, the ESV has really become
1: popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they've done, Crossway has done a great job of getting the scripture out, and a lot of People are behind it, and I think one of the key things to a translation doing well is just who endorses it. Because when men and and leaders that that everyone respects um, step up and endorse a translation, that's that's really key.
2: We were talking earlier in the episode about the authority of the church versus the authority of Scripture. This comes back to the issue of Scripture alone, i.e., sola Scriptura. Aaron, what do we mean by Scripture alone?
1: Scripture alone. Well, I, I understand that as meaning that the Scripture has sole authority, so it has more authority than the the Church, the organized Church, because the the Word of God is um, breathed out by God. I mean, it's a it's a tangible, understandable. Um, testimony to God's will for us in that sense. So, but it shouldn't be pulled apart from the church because the the word of God is for the church. So you understand it in the context of the church. You live out the commandments in the context of the, of the church. So in a way, you don't want to pull them apart, but um, it alone is authoritative. So, someone
2: might bring up the objection again, especially modern Roman Catholic apologists. And again it comes back to the interpretation of the translation that we have. And they might say, well you guys have all these interpretations. No one can agree on one interpretation. So therefore we need the authority of the church, i.e. the magisterium, to tell you what the scriptures,
1: what the scriptures teach. Well they they couldn't even all agree, right? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> if you look at look at the history of of Christendom, you know the Roman Catholics haven't always all agreed themselves. I mean, that's what pushed John Wycliffe because he saw the two right. totally condemning each other um, exactly. But but even more, um, I think that um, we need to just humble ourselves before God's word and try to live according to it. And so we, we need to be in humble submission under the word. Even the church is under God's word.
2: Amen. Ultimately, that's what it comes back to, that we can argue back and forth till the cows come home, but it comes down to the authority of Scripture. I and mean, it's important to take take this seriously because that does separate us from you know novel interpretations, like we've been saying, and also from authoritarianism like the magisterium, Rome today. In fact, Rome has never recanted of this. They still have the same position that they have always had, that the magisterium is the one who controls the interpretation of Scripture.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly.
2: Hence, Hence the reason why the Protestant Reformation happened in the
1: first place. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, before I wrap things up, I want to thank you, Aaron, for coming back on the podcast with us. And if someone wants to contact you, where can they do so?
1: Well, we've just um, started a uh, launched a website. It's just my name and my wife's name, so Aaron and Susan Shryock. Um, so the um, and I think Onyx is going to put something on the Facebook page for your blog for your podcast as well. To
0: yes, we can do that.
1: So, and we're also you can find us at Unfolding Word. That's the organization we're joining. Um, we're there on their staff list. So, um, yeah, be glad to answer questions or chat with anyone. Because uh, I I really um, believe that this is just a practical outworking of our love for the Lord and the church and His Word is that we want to see the the Word translated for all the all the languages.
2: Very good. Thank you for being with us once again. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Matt and Onig. It's always a pleasure.
2: Yes. Onig, where can they reach us?
0: They can reach us at our email address, info at bttrmin.org dot org, or backtothereformation at gmail dot com. We're also on Facebook.
2: Awesome. And they can also reach us on Twitter, I believe, as well. Yes. Well... We want to thank you for taking the time to listen in, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of Back to the Reformation. See ya!